Welcome back to the Multicultural Middle Ages. Join us for a conversation with Bryant White about some of the uses of medievalisms in colonial and post-colonial contexts. This episode is hosted by Vanessa Ayakoka. Vanessa is an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow at University College Dublin, and Bryant is currently a PhD candidate in the Department of French and Italian at Vanderbilt University, where he is writing a dissertation on the development of religious parity in France during the Middle Ages. Now that introductions have been made, the floor is yours, Vanessa. So, Bryant, can you tell us what got you interested in medievalisms and their connection to colonial and post-colonial contexts? Yeah, um, so it's interesting because this isn't actually the main focus of my dissertation work, but it's sort of a tangential or ancillary thing that I'm interested in. And it kind of goes all the way back to um, two grad seminars, really, that I had in the same semester during my first year as a PhD student. I have to really give a lot of credit here to Lynn Ramey, um, who taught one of those seminars on medieval travel narratives and who's also the the um, director of my dissertation now. So we were reading things like St. Brendan's Voyage and Marco Polo and John Mandeville. And we're just talking a lot about medieval othering and about the monstrous races. There were such a frequent tropes in those kinds of texts. So you'd have like the cynocephali, these dog-headed people who we'll be talking about in a moment. and skiopods who have like one giant leg instead of two and all these different monstrous others and talking about how this how this was really used to mark out and exaggerate difference and exoticize the geographical and racial other and and we're talking about things like jeffrey jerome cohen's monster theory and all of that which was fascinating and at the same time concurrently i was also in this other seminar with robert barsky who's also now in my dissertation committee we're talking about law and literature in the 19th century and each of us was given sort of freedom to develop a project and so long story short i decided to do my work on the congo which is close to my heart because my wife is is actually from there and i was looking at how law and literature really joined forces in one particular individual in belgium edmund picard or edmond picard in french who was a jurist but also hugely influential in sort of the burgeoning Belgian literary scene and Belgian symbolist poetry and promoting a very sort of socially engaged nationalist literary movement. And Picard was just, he was influential in writing a judicial opinion, giving legal advice to King Leopold II of Belgium in order to justify his taking of the Congo as his own personal private property and just what is still just one of the most audacious and atrocious acts of colonialism ever perpetrated. And the the atrocities and the, just the horrific things that ensued in the Congo as a result have been very well documented. But what I found was a travel narrative by Picard from 1896 called En Congoli that specifically appropriates the medieval trope of the Sinocephali to engage in colonialist, racialized, and racist othering. And I do think it's clear from the text that Picard is very much situating himself within this medieval tradition and as a man of letters, he would have been quite familiar with that literature, no doubt, because at another point, he compares himself to St. Brendan and compares his own travels through the Congo with St. Brendan's voyage. And so then my question became, well, is this, some, is just this something particular to Picard, or are there other examples of this pre-modern trope in the modern era? And through some research, I found sort of two more examples of this, and there are probably others out there that I'm just not aware of, but I found one in a work of fiction, a novel by 
uh, Jules Verne called Five Weeks in a Balloon from 1863. And another instance in a comic book from the 1930s called Zozo the Explorer by a Belgian illustrator. And all of these very much connect to the context of colonialism in Africa and, and use the trope in an extremely racist way to depict the colonized peoples. And so I turned this into a conference paper that I presented at the annual conference for the International Society for the Study of Medievalism, and then also submitted it as an article to the journal, The Year's Work in Medievalism. That's absolutely fascinating. And it's so interesting that you found this trope appear in such a variety of sources. I don't think I'm alone in being interested in these monstrous races and the, the cyanocephali, say that five times fast. <laughs> exactly. uh, in, in it's a bit of a tongue twister. Yes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how they're portrayed in medieval context versus their reception or reinterpretation in these other texts that, that you mentioned. Yeah, so the monstrous races kind of go back to several Greek sources, including some apocryphal letters from Alexander the Great. And then sort of later you have Pliny the Elder in Rome sort of synthesizing and cataloging a number of these in the first century. And that was really so influential that we often we refer to them synonymously as the Plinian races. But what's new in the Middle Ages that we have a little more reflection on what the races actually signify and a lot of sort of theological and scholastic philosophical debates going on surrounding their ontological status, you know, whether they're more essentially human or more essentially animal and, and whether they can be saved, whether they can hear the gospel. But I think basically what's going on here is still sort of racial othering with also this sort of symbolic dimension as well, specifically with the dog-headed people. You have the head as sort of the seat of reason right? And medieval thought being animalized and that's reason and the rational human being being dominated by animal passions. So I think there are some aspects of discontinuity with the medieval usage of the trope once we get to the modern period. So it's obviously being appropriated for a somewhat different context and with somewhat different effects, one in which an agenda of othering based on biological race is much more clearly and fully articulated. But I would say at the same time, there's a kind of fundamental continuity in terms of the fact that it's all othering, it's all a way to make the racial and geographical other look monstrous. And at the very least, I think we can say that it takes the worst elements already latent or in seed form in the medieval trope and exploits them for very explicitly white supremacist dehumanizing ends with very real consequences for actual human lives. And I don't think we can ignore parallels and connections between modern racism and what certain medieval authors were doing. And I, I rely a lot here on the work of Geraldine Hang, for example, along with Dorothy Kim and some others as well, but particularly Hang in her book, The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages, which I think is just absolutely brilliant and really helped shape so much of my thinking on this. And she talks about race making in the Middle Ages and demonstrates, I think quite convincingly, that we can talk about this accurately in the Middle Ages when we understand that it goes beyond mere reference to skin color and bodily traits, but can take into account all means, whether, you know, through religion, politics, class structures, by which one group marks itself off differently from another in order to signal its superiority. And this certainly can include physiognomic or bodily otherness as well as we see in the medieval travel narratives. So, yeah, so I think it's a mix. It's a mix of continuity and discontinuity, you know, and we have to take both into account. So you 
touched on especially the contemporary relevance of these discussions and you know talking about white nationalism then and now like you say it's not much of a jump to look at how these things are informing modes of thinking today and i was just yeah. wondering if you could speak a little more about this and maybe there's some lessons that we can glean from your work and similar research yeah so absolutely i think uh, as medievalists hopefully we have become or are becoming more and more aware in recent years of the ways that medievalism and the medieval past can be appropriated for racist dehumanizing ends and i think you know i think about for example the type of medieval iconography that was used in the events at charlottesville virginia in 2017 and the way for example in, in white supremacist circles the medieval crusades are often referenced and appropriated and i was just at this past year's medievalism conference and there was a session on medieval iconography and phraseology being used in brazil by far-right and extreme racist groups and there are some great recent works that have been written about this, like Amy Kaufman and Paul Sturdivant's book, The Devil's Historians, How Modern Extremists Abuse the Medieval Past. So my big takeaway here is just that we need to be careful and thoughtful regarding how we talk about the Middle Ages, what aspects we focus on, how we frame these discussions, what we choose to appropriate positively, lest we end up promoting things or promoting mindsets that can then be exploited for racist ends, as we see in these modern French texts. And I really think there are sort of twin dangers here that I want to point out of, of setting up the Middle Ages as entirely white and European, which is really what the white supremacists want to do. That's one danger on one side or else setting it up as sort of a pre-racial age of innocence before the fall into race where we can sort of completely sidestep questions of race, othering, colonialism, all of that. So I really think we want to avoid both of those pitfalls. And that's sort of what I'm keen to, to argue for and point out in this this article that I uh, wrote. I'm so glad you referenced The Devil's Historians. Uh, that's such a fantastic piece. It describes the way we can sort of dissect the pernicious influence of, of medieval misconceptions. And, and your work clearly is a part of maybe a larger movement toward doing that kind of work. Uh, so that's fantastic. And refusing to sidestep the, the issues uh, that you're pointing out, colonialism, racialization, and so on. interested to hear about your work, maybe in how it affects the other side of medievalism, maybe a more yeah. positive side. Yeah. Recently, you examined the medievalism of Patrick Ashemwiso, and mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about his work in, in this also more uplifting context as well. Definitely necessary to talk about the, the pernicious influence, but maybe yes. there's a positive example to be found here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I do think Chamoiseau does represent the other side of the coin for medievalism and how medievalism can be used in a positive way and sort of, well, as I'll try and show, sort of deconstructed and played with towards goals that are much more positive and encouraging. So Chamoiseau is an author from Martinique in the Caribbean. And, you know, just to talk about the history of Martinique. It was colonized by the French in the 17th century and also became part of the Middle Passage in the Atlantic slave trade. And Chamoiseau is a descendant of those slaves who were forcibly brought there. And Martinique has not yet gained independence from France. It, it did go officially from being a colony to an overseas depart department, department that sends its own delegates to the French National Assembly 
But even in the post-colonial era, it still lives very much in the after effects of colonialism and of so much of the devastation and poverty that that brought. And Sham Wazo has been very much a political activist as well as a literary artist. And he's written in a variety of genres as well, novels, essays, children's books, screenplays, theater, and comics. And his writing often explores sort of this idea of the interplay between the oral and the written, as well as the mixedness, and he calls in French mixité, or the sort of hybrid nature of living in the Caribbean, what he calls creoleness or creolité in French, which has to do with just the diversity of cultures and languages that come together in the Caribbean. And that's something that he seeks to represent and give a voice to in his work. And I think this is all really well represented in the text that I'm going to talk about, Abou d'enfance, or um, might be translated as uh, The End of Childhood, which is a coming-of-age novel. It's the third in a trilogy called Une Enfance Creole, a, a Creole Childhood, that is really autobiographical. And interestingly, this is the only entry in that trilogy that hasn't been translated yet into English. And so the other two have, but unfortunately, this, this one has not yet. But it's just it's a fascinating piece of writing. Can you tell us about maybe its medievalism connections? Yeah. yeah, sure. So, and this kind of ties into where I came to the text, which is that I discovered Chamoiseau in a grad seminar on Caribbean literature. And I knew I was already a medievalist at that point, but I was really, I was really kind of fascinated by writings by him and by other Caribbean writers and intrigued by this idea of also at the same time, where can I find examples of medievalism? Maybe they're just kind of like lurking everywhere. And, I, you know, honestly, I kind of think that's true because I tend to find them everywhere now. Uh, maybe that's just sort of the lenses I'm, I'm always looking through. But but yeah, I knew that I needed to write a paper for the seminar. And I was like, how can I basically how can I connect this somehow to my own line of research? And I saw it mentioned somewhere that he sort of plays with the notion of courtly love in this novel. And I, I ended up reading it and was just blown away by how much he does with the medievalism and medieval parody. And that it's not just courtly love as a genre that he brings into the text, but other medieval genres and discourses as well. And so, you know, I decided to write on him. And just to give some examples of some of the things that he parodies that are examples of medievalism. Well, to back up a little bit, the novel is really about the awakening of romantic feelings in the main character who basically represents Chamoiseau himself. And that's where the courtly love element comes into play. But he also has this whole sort of like ontological classification scheme that gets set up as the main character is trying to sort through his world and the different types of people in it, including adults and then the, the girls that he encounters at school. And all of these groups have these sort of separate ontological categories and like for example the adults are referred to as les grandes personnes with capital g capital p so the big people and the narrator actually refers to them as sort of being at different rungs on a scale as well and this sort of seems to harken back to or be an allusion to aristotle's sort of great chain of being which is also a huge part of medieval philosophical discourse and then there's another section that just feels very, very scholastic in a kind of medieval way in sort of a question and answer format and that's actually labeled as philosophical explore, explorations and it's a section where Chamoiseau and his friends are analyzing and trying to define kissing as a phenomenon and then there's a passage that seems to parody medieval epic poetry and describes the boys in the schoolyard being arrayed in battle against the girls and then yeah you have all the tropes of courtly love as well you have the lady 
the narrator's beloved who seems sort of cold and inaccessible to him at first. And he's using very sort of hyperbolic language to describe her, which is a very common thing you find in medieval courtly love uh, literature, calling her the most beautiful person in the whole world. And there are all these tests he has to go through to try and earn her love. Uh, and then you have a section where the protagonist decides that he needs some kind of magic potion to win her love. And there's a section that just sort of details a number of sorcery spells. And so this calls back to things like, for example, the medieval account of Tristan and Iseur or um, Tristan and Isolde. So it's clear that the narrator is sort of interpreting his adolescent experience through the lens of this Western European medieval literature that he's been given to read at school, perhaps. And this is made clear from the very beginning of the book, where there's just a really quite beautiful passage that describes his immersion into the world of books and and fictional characters that become his friends. And actually, what's interesting there is that although most of the characters and stories he, he references are Western European, there are also a number of Caribbean references too, getting back to the notion of Creolness, which we'll return to. But yeah, you have the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. They're a huge part of this sort of imaginative lens through which the narrator sees the world. He's always referring to his friends as a group of knights and squires and a king. And they use one of those sort of big, empty electric cable spools as their round table. And the narrator has to go through a series of tests to become a knight. And then when his love for the lady is discovered, he's actually put on trial with the knights in a way that sort of recalls what happens with Lancelot's love for Guinevere and certain forms of Arthurian legend. But anyway, all these types of medieval tropes and discourses that are parried are really sort of undergirded with this playful, very playful comic tone where the incongruity of sort of transposing them into both a Caribbean and an adolescent context is kind of highlighted and heightened. And uh, Shamwazo is just so good at bringing that irony and incongruity into play without sort of hitting you over the head with it. I like also the idea of your ears kind of pricking up from the beginning at here at little bits of these tropes scattered throughout yes. uh, and and then repeatedly coming back to them in these different ways. At a certain point, it makes you wonder, is medievalism just ubiquitous or when you pay attention? Yeah, then that's always my question. That And that's kind of more and more. That's what I, I, I do feel that it is. I do feel like you just can't get away from it no matter what media you're engaging with. A touchstone for better yeah. and worse. You discussed how interesting Ashemwaso has outlined a kind of post-colonial critique or, or discussion mm-hmm. and how deliberate he's been in engaging with these important conversations. Uh, yeah. So I just was curious, you were discussing how delicately and how inventive he is uh, in, in using these different medieval tropes, especially parody. And I was yeah. just curious if you want to speak a bit more about his, his post-colonial project. So, I mean, he's definitely, he's very much an activist in promoting, in promoting this concept of creolness. He actually, so there's this big sort of social manifesto that he co-wrote in collaboration with two other people, Raphael Confiant and Jacques Bernabé. It's called the English translation is In Praise of Creolness. That's from 1989, where he sort of lays out this project of what he calls creolness and this sort of hybridization and diversity of languages and cultures that he's really keen to give a voice to. And he's writing a sort of a way of fighting back against the legacy of colonialism and the monolithic sort of imposition of Western European culture. The way that Chamoiseau represents this in this particular text brings me back to that word I just used, incongruity. 
And I, I think what he's doing here is it's very complex, very subtle. But I think one of the effects of this kind of medieval parody is sort of to highlight or expose the absurdities inherent in the imposition of this white European culture within his cultural and educational context. But in a way that is, again, much more subtle than a direct attack might be, he's, he's showing it to us, making us feel that rather than just sort of bluntly telling us. And I, I, I also keep thinking of the great po post-colonial theorist Homi Baba's concept of mimicry here which I think is so relevant, especially when we're talking about parody. So there's this kind of mimicry that Shem was always engaged in that can't help but sort of subvert and undermine the hierarchy and the claims to dominance of the white European colonizers. He's appropriating something of theirs that was imposed, but taking it and using it to his own ends and twisting it just slightly in a way that feels like mockery at the same time that it's somewhat ambiguous. And this is, this is I really think this is of the essence of parody too, which is always, it's always imitation but with a twist. And where that twist comes in, there's always going to be a little bit of ambivalence or ambiguity. Is this sort of just sort of homage or is there a current of mockery and derision here too? And I think that ambiguity in play is actually just what makes this so powerful because here in a very kind of carnivalesque way, Shamwazo is deconstructing and inverting the elevation of things like courtly love and the chivalric quest from the realm of the overly serious and solemn, which is what they had become. They'd been sort of put on a pedestal, really, in the context of 19th century medievalism and medieval studies, which, as we, you know, as has been well documented, was really wrapped up in racist nationalism and colonialism and white supremacy. And I actually think Shem was always is playful in a way that actually has more in common with actual medieval texts than with sort of that later medievalism, because there are all kinds of examples in you know in my field in french medieval literature a parody of courtly love and of medieval epic poetry and scholasticism and all of that so you can find that in things like the roman de renard which engages in sort of medieval parody of medieval epic poetry and aucassin and nicolette which parodies sort of courtly love just to name a few texts from the french context but lastly i do think that what chamoiseau is doing fits very well with his own theorizing about what he calls creolness creolité in which the encounter of the many different languages and cultures represented in the Caribbean goes toward the creation of something new, something hybrid. And this is what Chamoiseau takes as a more hopeful paradigm for the world. And it's really the kind of thing he wants to do in his literature. And again, I would say, I would actually say that this has a real parallel in medieval parody as well, where you really have elements of medieval popular culture represented alongside elements of medieval church culture or noble culture and all being used in a playful sort of deconstructive way even down to the linguistic level and so some of the texts that i for example analyze in my dissertation work play with french and latin and even sort of invent their own hybrid forms of the two and this is something that is very similar to what chamoiseau in his context also does with with french and creole so yeah in a nutshell i'd say it's kind of all those things put together that that makes this so fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like intertwined, convoluted dimensions that come together. And it's interesting to think about him not flattening the use of medieval tropes and so on, but embracing kind of the playfulness or the intricacy and then using it to parallel linguistic and identity-based yeah. uh, work that's absolutely fascinating. fascinated by the diversity of examples that you brought up, especially that 
you mentioned a comic book. I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit more about how that fits in with your other work and how maybe some of the tropes that you've been looking at applies there differently or similarly to the other texts under consideration. I also found this to be quite fascinating, the fact that you have this trope of the synocephali coming up in all these different genres. You know, you have an autobiographical travel narrative, a fictional novel, and a comic book. But again, they're all sort of working within this context of colonialism, even though one is from 1863, one's from 1896, one's from about 1936 with the comic book. But I think the fact that this trope is showing up in such wildly different genres and across this broad timeline may say something about how widespread and enduring the trope has been. And I haven't found other examples of this in other texts, but I'm curious if they're out there. It might be something that someone else or maybe even myself at some point might do a bit more research on. But yeah, it's interesting that this trope keeps coming up. And it always sort of tends to come up in these contexts where you have, in all these texts, where you have these sort of nameless, faceless groups that are tagged with this or compared to the Sinocephali. And so it just it just brings to mind the fact for me that it's always a large group of people moving together as a unit that get this epitaph. And I think it just speaks to how easy it is to dehumanize and engage in horrific othering when we're not interacting with individuals, but instead choose to treat them as a monolithic group. And also, it's just interesting to see how medievalism can function in so many different genres. And that's something we'll see we'll see uh, later on, even with Chamoiseau's text, how he's really playing with different genres as well. And you mentioned monster theory and monstrous races more yeah. generally. But I was yes. curious, do you find the Sinocephali themselves doing something distinct or are they used in a... Why, why are they specifically being repeated, yeah. do you think? What, where is that... Yeah, hitting so hard in the reception, especially in in colonial yeah. and post-colonial contexts. I mean, I think it's really, honestly, I think it's really just this sort of animalization of the other, you know, of the racial other. I think that's really where we get the most continuity here, maybe with the medieval context. Again, going back to this sort of symbolic reading of it, which I was, I was really influenced by Carl Steele, uh, who has this book called How to Make a Human where he has a section that sort of addresses the Sinocephali and, and talks about this sort of symbolic reading of them where they sort of represent reason and, you know, the Logos basically being sort of dominated by animal passions and animal desires. And, and I think it's being used in this way to sort of animalize and other those in these colonial contexts. That makes perfect sense, especially in the context you're discussing. for sharing what is clearly exciting and significant work. I thought I'd just end by asking where could our listeners find find out more about these topics and uh, your research in particular? So I would say when, when it comes to like the monstrous races, I mentioned Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who's really great on monster theory. And I also recommend John Block Friedman's book called The Monstrous Races in Medieval Art and Thought, which I think is just probably the best sort of introduction and survey in my opinion, of this concept and how it works in the medieval period. I also might recommend the work of Deborah Higgs Strickland in this connection. And then I mentioned the work of Geraldine Hang and also that recent book by The Devil's Historians by Amy Kaufman and Paul Sturdevant, which is uh, which is just all really good stuff on race and the, the use and abuse of medievalism. 
And then sort of for the second part of our discussion, I would just really recommend anything by Patrick, Patrick Chamoiseau. Um, all of his stuff is great. There are a lot of things that aren't available in English translation, but a fair number that are. So I might recommend his novel Texaco from 1992, which was widely acclaimed when it came out. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's brilliant. Also, his essay that I mentioned earlier that he co-wrote in praise of Creoleness, which really will give you a better idea of his underlying ideas about this concept of Creoleness and how all that sort of informs his other writing and activism. And when it comes to me, for following me, I do have a Twitter account that I barely use. I hardly follow anyone except some medievalists, but I actually follow Patrick Chamoiseau. I found him there, and he's a great person to follow if you have a mind to do that. He always posts great stuff, including some of his his writing and poetry that he's been working on. But anyway, I'm also on academia.edu. You can find me there and maybe a little bit more about the work I'm doing, although I probably need to update that page a bit. And in connection to what we talked about today, I'm, I'm hoping to see my article published soon in the year's work in medievalism. It's called Sinocéphale, using the, the French uh, translation of that term. Sinocéphale, abuses of a medieval trope in several French texts of the modern era. And that's, that's still in progress, but uh, you know, be on the lookout for that at some point. And I did actually just publish a different article called Edmond Picard and the Congo Free State, a study in law and literature. And that is in the online journal Humanities. And that's a much broader look at Picard and his role as a jurist and a writer in relation to what happened in the Congo. But I do walk through, I do walk through his travel narrative and, and sort of briefly mention his reference to Sinocephali there. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think I speak for all of us when I say we look forward to reading more about your research and following Chamoiseau. I hope he gets a bunch of followers overnight and, and wonder why. And yeah, no, he's <laughs> awesome. He's awesome. I love him. I'm excited. I'm sold. Absolutely sold. Well, Brian, thank you so much. This was fantastic. And uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by 